Welcome back. So glad you could join the reading of chapter 13. It just gets better and better. Chapter 13 is called 1968, the year 1968. And I read, I read some of it. And if you were around in 1968... You probably know how pivotal that year was with Dr. Martin Luther King being assassinated and the social consciousness movements, movements that emerged. So many other things that went on that year, many shocking things that they parallel the times that we live in now in 2022 and the last several years. With one shock after the next. But there's there's some humor in this chapter that it makes it worth hearing it. There's a lot of good history in here too. So let's do this. Miles could make me laugh so hard I'd nearly choke to death. Every time we'd sit down for dinner, he'd start up with his crazy stories. I never knew where his tales would go. A few made me cringe, like the one about a friend he called Third Story Joe, so named for his skill in scaling buildings to rob them. While others made me curious, during Miles' childhood, his mother, when hosting ladies' lunches, counted out her guests' peas before serving them. Regardless of the memory shared, whether it was relishing his early years as Little Davis in Charlie Parker's quintet or recounting how his beloved father once locked him in his guest house in an effort to help Miles break his drug habit cold turkey. Every one of his accounts by the end had me 
doubled over. There was something about Miles' storytelling, peppered with color. The F word took up residence on his tongue, and lacking in pretense, quote, Jazz is a N-word that white folks dropped on us. He'd say that inevitably choked me up one evening after semi-successfully avoiding the bones in his fish soup. I slammed my spoon down and yelled, you're trying to kill me. Why don't you tell me those stories when I'm not eating? He was so full of the devil, that Miles. What an incredible sense of humor. And style Miles like my father, was a dapper Dan, a certified stepper. He had an Italian tailor, Mario, who dressed him to the hilt. In the 1960s, men's fashion was exactly as I prefer it. Slim-fitting suits complemented with thin ties, thin lapels, Thin collars, clean and perfect for Miles's svelte figure. Whenever the two of us turned up, boy, we turned some heads. I beamed at his side, glamorous in my couture, showing off looks by style mavens such as Arthur McGee, the first black designer to ever run a studio. I felt proud to stand alongside Miles, loved folding my silk-gloved hands into his strong ones. Quote, I knew sooner or later one of the big boys would sweep you off your feet. Warren would tease me. Like Ossie and Ruby, Miles and I were among a handful of black power couples of the 60s. An artistic duo, an artistic duo that drew stares. Once, when he and I were out at a dinner concert, a well-known singer I won't name glided over to our table after she'd performed. Quote, You've got that prize, Miss Cicely, she told me. Around town, everyone knew she'd been salivating over miles for years. She then turned to him and said, and I can't tell you 
how lucky you are. I smiled and pulled my sequin wrap more snugly around my shoulders. One of my most cherished fashion staples was a gift from Miles. He once called up a renowned designer and said to him, quote, I want you to make Cecily a fur coat. I don't make fur coats, the man told him. Miles repeated his statement the second time, adding, And I want it here on December 24th. Sure enough, by noon on Christmas Eve, an enormous brown paper bag sat in the middle of Miles' living room floor. What's that? I asked. Well, open it and see, he said, a glint of mischief in his eyes. I lifted out the floor-length stunner and gasped. In the following years, I wore that mink out. Do you hear me? And whenever I donned my Cadillac of coats, others gawked and exchanged glances. I basked in the glory and the gaze. Hair was central to the fashion show. I learned to style my fro in every manner known to black womankind, shortly cropped, twisted out, pulled into a poof, corn road. For versatility, I reached for beehive wigs, clip on chinones and goddess braids created using extensions. In those years, Miles and I frequented Castulan, the upscale beauty parlor on 125th Street in Harlem, called Frenchie. Oh, con- correction. <laughs> Miles and I frequented Castulan the upscale beauty parlor on 125th Street in Harlem. Camelo Casimir, the French-Haitian owner and stylist, we all called Frenchie, offered premier hair and makeup services to the stars. Many in our circle came through there. Our friend, Harold Melvin rented a booth at the salon in those days, and years later, after Frenchie passed, Harold opened his own salon on 72nd Street, 
where it still stands. James Finney, in the era before he became Miles' personal hairdresser, also hung around Cas Doolin a lot. Finney, notorious for his braiding talents, created main masterpieces on Valerie Simpson of Ashford and Simpson and others. We all gossiped at Castulan as much as I did at Sardis, exchanging scuttlebutt amid the sounds of Sam Cooke promising us over the salon loudspeaker that a change was gonna come. That was the 60s, a peculiar combination of fashion and frivolity, protest, and profound social turmoil. The decade in our America bore varied expressions, each seared in my memory as deeply as those of Miles's many faces, the era the era radiated with ethnic pride as Black Panthers donned Kenta cloths and proclaimed Black is beautiful. It spat back at its oppressors with the black power movement insisting upon change by any means necessary. It throbbed and ate, drooping its head low after the church bombing in Birmingham and the assassinations of JFK and Malcolm X. It clenched its jaw and clutched its fists, chanting, Mississippi, be damned. Nina Simone's anthem in response to Medgar Evers' murder with freedom rides and demonstrations Watts riots and urban uprisings. The 60s raised its voice even as it stiffened its spine. And then, in the spring of 1968, as the decade screeched toward its close, it let out a primal well. That April, Miles and I were on a tour stop in Seattle. Anytime Miles was on the road, he never wanted to go out for lunch or dinner, preferring always to preserve his energy for his performances. So, 
in the kitchen of the apartment we stayed in. I fixed us something to eat while he sat in the living room, talking on the phone with his attorney, Harold. When their conversation ended, he laid down the phone and looked over at me. Quote, Harold said they shot King. He said, I continued stirring my pot of broth, feeling sure that as usual, Miles was joking. I was just about to blurt out, now that's not funny, when he delivered the remainder of his sentence, and he's dead. I folded like an accordion, my body turning in on itself as I faltered to my knees. The words, a penetrating dagger, stabbed me right in my solar plexus. What? I asked. What did you say? King has been assassinated, Miles told me. He's gone. I will always be amazed at how a singular occurrence can break open the soul of the world. One moment you're stirring your wooden spoon through a saucepan, lost in the aroma of savory bouillon, oblivious to what awaits. The next moment, a simple turn of the spoon later, you are down on the cold linoleum, arms cradled around yourself, numbed into silent weeping.
On the evening, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was gunned down on the second floor of the Lorraine Motel in Memphis. The earth rocked and quaked and then all at once splintered into the suddenness of the shift. The wrenching pain of it all was for me soon followed by a personal gut punch. After Dr. King's passing, life carried on, but with a low hum of melancholy beneath it, the loss rearranged the air's molecules, made the atmosphere heavy. Living in those times felt like trudging forward in the slowest of motion, more sluggish by the step, every movement and task, even the most mundane, took on a kind of lethargy. This is how grief sits down on you. It closes in presses your chest with all its might and makes it difficult even to breathe.
few years before King's death, life sent me another hard lesson in surviving as a black actress. I received a call from Elia Kazan, a renowned Greek-American theater director. He and Robert Whitehead co-founded the Repertory Theater at Lincoln Center. He and Robert Whitehead co-founded the Repertory Theater at Lincoln Center, which in 1964 opened in its temporary home in Greenwich Village. While its permanent home, the Vivian Beaumont Theater at Lincoln Center, was being constructed even before Elia called me. I'd heard that he and Robert were casting for their upcoming productions. I'd also heard that some of the industry's black organizations had been pressuring Elia to cast at least one African-American actor. He'd relented by bringing in two light-skinned performers, men so pale you had to squint to even know they were black. Quote, Can't you find a black female actress? Elia had been asked. He claimed he didn't know any which is when he was given my number, he rang and invited me to come by his office. The meeting started out pleasantly enough. Quote, I've heard quite a bit about you, he said, smiling. Tell me more about yourself. I explained how I'd gotten into the business where I'd studied, and what I'd enjoyed most about my work in the Blacks. The conversation flowed easily, and before we knew it, an hour had gone by. Quote, I find you very interesting, he said. But... Unfortunately, I have to leave for an appointment. Can we meet again tomorrow? I agreed and returned the next afternoon for another equally delightful chat. Quote, you know something, I said near the close of our meeting. 
I'd like to ask you a question. He nodded and sat up at his desk. Why aren't there any black women in the company? I asked. Cicely, he said bluntly. I have to tell you this. When a black woman walks across the stage, the audience's mind turns to sex. I stared at him, absolutely dumbstruck by what he told me. To this moment, I cannot believe that. Even if he believed what he was saying, he'd be insensitive enough to actually say it to a black woman. And not only did he say it, he uttered it casually without even a hint of self-consciousness. This man was considered the foremost director of his time, and he was admitting it, openly professing that he'd deprive me of a job because of a long-held stereotype. Well, you know something? I got up from my chair. I walked out of that man's office, and I never returned. I later heard that the company eventually brought in Ethel Eiler, the talented and gorgeous black actress who'd once replaced Abby Lincoln in The Blacks. I can only imagine what that poor woman endured. Elia was eventually fired from his post and replaced amid rumors that he'd clandestinely blacklisted actors during the communist Red Scare of the 1950s. Three years later, in 1967, I auditioned for a role in The Heart is a Lonely Hunter, a beautiful film about a deaf-mute man, a story based on Carson McCullough's novel, Alan Arkin, was to play the lead. I read for the role of Portia, daughter of a physician who is disappointed that his well-educated child has chosen to work as a domestic. For the audition, I was asked to put on a Hoover apron, the kind my mother used to wear around the house. I did so 
and began reading afterward. The producer, Thomas Ryan, stared at me and then over at a colleague. No. No one's going to believe she's a maid, he said. She looks like a model. Here we go again with this nonsense, I thought. What is this fool talking about? With my petite figure, I didn't fit the well-worn trope of the buxom mammy. So I was constantly told I wasn't quite right. Why even call me in for the part? I'd stand there thinking as the casting crew members murmured among themselves. Before I got here, you knew what I looked like, which, as I saw it, had little to do with whether I could convincingly portray a character. Quote, Can we put her in a different costume? Thomas called out to someone on his team. I'm playing a maid and this is my body, I said to myself. What more do you want from me? He obviously got over the misgivings because I eventually landed the part.
I was on a set filming when the country suffered yet another body blow. A lone gunman shot Robert F. Kennedy, then running for president. The world gasped in unison as he did a day later when he died at Good Samaritan Hospital in Los Angeles. Only two short months before we'd lost King. Most black folks in the country saw RFK as the remaining hope a candidate intent on extending King's quest for civil rights. He was a man who promised to end a deeply controversial war overseas in Vietnam and who promoted equality for black Americans who had not yet been granted first-class citizenship here. This was precisely Muhammad Ali's point when he refused in 1967 to serve in the war and said, quote, I ain't got no quarrel with them, Viet Cong. King's murder had been devastating on its own. But when Bobby was assassinated, that devastation morphed into delirium. There was a sense, as there is in our times now, that the country had come undone. In July 1968, right after that one-two punch, The Heart is a Lonely Hunter premiered in New York. Miles and I showed up on the red carpet together, an image of us, yellow by time, but forever stashed in my box of memories, brings to mind the feeling of that era. Miles's arms are folded across his body, his eyes covered with sunglasses. I, wearing a simple sleeveless dress, stand near him with one hand 
clutching my pocketbook, the other resting on his hand. A pair of silver chandelier earrings swirl from my lobes toward my shoulders like two large teardrops. We both peer blankly into the camera lens, our bodies present in the room, our spirits far away. When I look at that photo now, it reminds me of the stillness of those months following Dr. King's and RFK's murders of the quiet and the questioning that befall you once a casket has been lowered into the ground. We were there to celebrate the opening of a film and still we were inwardly weeping. A few weeks after the premiere, Miles gave me yet another reason to grieve. One afternoon, I was relaxing in his living room on the ground floor while he was upstairs in the bedroom. The doorbell rang. When I opened the door, there stood a light-skinned young black woman with straight hair cascading down her back. She stared at me. This is the woman I thought. I immediately recognized her as the lady I'd seen in my vision months before, the one who sat at Miles' side as he sped up 7th Avenue in his white Ferrari. Before I could speak, Miles, who'd heard the bell, came down the stairs and to the door. He looked at her and then at me and then back at her. He pushed past me, ushered the woman away from the entrance and shut the door behind him. I stood there jaw on the ground, scrambling to make sense of what had just occurred. I heard the talk that Miles was fooling with some woman by the name of Betty Mabry, a model and musician 19 years younger than he was. The circle of black entertainers was tiny in those days and 
even smaller in the world of Casadulan, our parlor. Two seconds after juice had slipped from someone's lips, that OJ had slid its way out the door and across town. I'd never seen the woman, but both Finney and Frenchie had spotted her. She'd had the nerve to start having her hair done at Cass Doolin. And on several occasions, she and Miles had been seen sniggling and giggling as they left there together. Quote, She struts in here acting like she's Mrs. Miles Davis, I heard. I never asked Miles about the rumors, in part because I did not want to believe they were true, and in part because I loved Miles so, but I never forgot a face, and once Betty stood across from me in Miles's doorway. One truth was irrefutable. This was the woman I'd foreseen. I stood there for only a moment. Miles and this woman were hardly down the block by the time I stormed from his place and back to my own a few streets away. Once home, I pulled out a large suitcase, lifted it onto my bed, and opened it. I packed up everything Miles had given, had ever given me, the dresses, the shoes, the jewelry, the mink coat, the items reeking of the guilt. that had prompted their purchase. 
An hour later, I held a taxi and loaded the suitcase in the trunk. Quote, Please take me around the corner to 312 West 77th, I told the driver. Upon arrival, I hauled that suitcase to Miles' store and rang the bell. I didn't know whether he'd be back home and I did not care either way. I had a message to deliver. He opened the door. I pushed past him and hurled the suitcase into the air. It landed with a thud a few feet from Betty, who stood there looking dumbfounded like she just witnessed the second coming before either of them could speak I bolted off The next week at the salon, word of our split had, of course, made its way to Frenchie. He'd heard that after I'd thrown that suitcase and marched away, Miles had gone absolutely berserk. Betty upset that Miles had been giving me lavish gifts while secretly courting her, told her friends that she'd never seen Miles more angry. Angry? If anyone had a right to fury, it was me. Miles had been strutting all over town with this woman, obviously with no care about mortifying me, and plainly with no fear of reprisal. As much as I cared for Miles, as deeply as I understood the hurt-filled past that plagued him, I would not 
allow him to blatantly disrespect me. Still, in those days after I discovered his affair, I felt more numb than indignant, more wounded than furious, more somber than upset. If he wanted this woman, then he could have her, but he could not have us both at once. And clearly, he did want her. Because soon after our debacle, and around the time Miles' divorce from Francis became final, he married Betty in the autumn of 1968. Yes, Jesus loves me because he sent me an exit ramp out of the country that fall with my emotions still raw, I landed a small recurring role in a Canadian television series. I don't recall the show's name, only that it became a lifeline for me. I packed my sorrows alongside my toiletries and flew to Toronto, channeling my sadness into my role, soothing myself the way I had during my childhood over the keys of a piano. For most of autumn, I was away, away from the salon chatter away from the misery swelling around the situation, away from Miles, whom I did not speak to after I flung that suitcase into his world. Years later, we'd again cross paths for act two of our story.
when the clock struck midnight into 1969, the country exhaled. The agony of 1968, one of the most turbulent years in U.S. history, was at last behind us, even if our collective anguish lingered. For me, the new year marked a time to move onward, even as I continued healing. Back from Canada, I dove into more work. That April, Trumpets of the Lord, a show I played in during 1963, and a musical based on James Weldon Johnson's book of poems titled God's Trombones returned to Broadway. I reprised my role as Reverend Marion Alexander following the Blacks. I'd played in a string of such productions, some of which have now fallen from memory, others of which bring a smile or a grimace. People are always telling me that I've had an illustrious career, but when I look back at some of the show titles I think, did I even play in half of these? Apparently, I portrayed an upstanding maid opposite a spiteful snob, the blue boy in black. 1963, performed poetry and song as part of an ensemble cast curated by Roscoe Lee Brown in his directorial debut. A Hand is on the Gate, 1966 and played Myrna Jessup in Carry Me Back to Morningside Heights, 1968. The first and only play directed by Sidney Portier. Not only was the latter a flop, but it 
also marked the first time I was fired. The story centered on a guilt-ridden liberal Jewish man who insisted on becoming a slave to a black law student as penance for whites' mistreatment of blacks. During rehearsals and, frankly, away from them, I don't say anything unless I have some reason to say it. And when I do so, I tend never to shout. Well, the other actors kept complaining that they couldn't hear me which is one reason I ended up getting fired. The other is that I didn't get along with one of the actors, though I don't recall what the nonsense was all about. Someone on the production crew, but not Sydney, sent me on my way, and Sydney and I never spoke about it or let it get in the way of our friendship. I don't remember who took my place, but it didn't matter. The show lasted mere days before the curtains crashed down. Trumpets of the Lord, the 1969 show I played in as I still mourned Miles didn't fare any better. It ended after only seven performances. Seven! Sydney, who could certainly sympathize, took me out for a drink after the final show. I'm finished, I told him. This is it. I can't do this anymore. I, of course, was not done with acting, but was just expressing the angst we artists feel when a show ends so abruptly. You work. You carry a child for nine months and then your baby miscarries. Quote, I am just going to leave this business. I told Sidney. He stared at me for the longest time. With that arresting gaze, only Sidney can give. And he said to me, quote, And do what, Cicely? I forged ahead, ever clinging to the wisdom my mother had once passed on to me sometime in the early 60s. 
I'd auditioned for a role I truly wanted but did not get. And around that time, I went by to see my mom. I was sure I'd wiped the disappointment from my face, but she spotted it. Quote, what's the matter with you? She asked as soon as I walked in the door. Nothing, I told her. Don't tell me nothing, she said. Sit down here and let me talk to you. I took a seat at her kitchen table and she repeated her question. I didn't get the job, I admitted in a mumble. She stared at me intently and then leaned toward me. Let me tell you something, girl, she said. What's for you in this life you will get, and what is not for you you will never get. Do you hear me? I nodded, the whole time thinking she'd gone mad. But as the years wore on, her words carried me through some things. My mother understood what I didn't yet at that time. That there's a path in this life with your name on it. What God means for you to have, no one can take it away from you. It's already yours. Our mission as God's children is to surrender to what he has ordained and to freely let all else just pass us by. What God had in mind for me was a new chapter. In 1968, I'd suffered another devastation when Warren Coleman died suddenly. He'd always had a major ambition to build a thriving black film company, which is what had led him to direct Carib Gold. Once that effort floundered, he moved back to his hometown of Boston, where his brother, Ralph, was directing the Negro Federal Theater of Massachusetts. He worked alongside Ralph even as he applied for an endowment for an endowment to fund his own dream. When he opened the envelope and read that he'd received the substantial endowment he'd requested 
he found the news so astonishing, so unbelievable for a black man during that era that he suffered a massive heart attack. Wow, still reeling from that stunning tragedy. I found another agent, but didn't take to her too well. She was always cutting me off in meetings. I moved on quickly. Somehow or another, I found my way to Bill Haber, whom I call Haber for short. Haber was based. Haber was based in California, the place where my path next carried me. Jimmy Comack, the actor and producer, asked me through Haber to star in an episode of The Courtship of Eddie's Father, an ABC sitcom Jimmy created. The episode titled Guess Who's Coming for Lunch involved a setup between my character, Betty, and Tom, a Latino character played by Brandon Cruz. Jimmy flew me to Los Angeles for filming. I stayed with Haber and his wife, Carol, in the Hollywood Hills. He ch- <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> I stayed with Haber and his wife, Carol, in the Hollywood Hills. Each morning, he rose early and slid the call sheet under my door. And after a few days, I'd done what I had to do on my last afternoon in town. I stopped by the ABC lot to thank Jimmy. (coughs) He must have been impressed with me because he said, quote, don't go. You don't belong in New York City. You belong here. He then mentioned that he'd seen a black woman on the lot that day, quote, and that must mean they're looking for a black character, he said, come with me. He walked me to an adjacent studio where he disappeared down the hall as I waited. A half hour later, he returned with a director who was casting for the hospital drama Medical Center. 
the series' first episode was to feature O.J. Simpson, and the director was looking for an actress to play O.J.'s wife for the one episode. I auditioned that very day and landed the part. Even before I could ring Haber with the news, Jimmy had already called him and persuaded him that I should remain in town. Quote, but where will I stay? I asked Haber when I returned to his place that evening. You can stay here with us, he said, without hesitation. I didn't know it at the time, but Haber hadn't yet informed Carol, whose second son, Quinn, was still an infant. Haber walked me into the kitchen where Carol was feeding little Quinn in his high chair. Carol, Cicely is going to be staying here with us for a while, he told her. She nodded and forced a half smile, but she didn't say much. And can you blame her? The nerve of Bill Haber to match me, to march me in there without first talking to his wife. Haber showed me to my space downstairs in their multi-level home. I'd have a private floor with its own entrance, he explained. I thanked him profusely. Haber's invitation for me to stay for a, quote, while turned out to be nine years. 
on and off. I never gave up my apartment or life back east. New York will always be my home, my foundation, the place where I feel rooted by loved ones and community. But starting in 1969, I became bi-coastal. I'd fly into Los Angeles, do a roll, and then fly back to New York City. The Habers became my second family. In fact, even when they moved to the Pacific Palisades during the 1970s, they asked me to move with them. Given the rumors that swirled during my time there, it's a wonder they let me stay. While I was living with the Habers, the world seemed convinced that Haber and I were having an affair. I can assure you we were not. For one thing, the idea of it was just plain ludicrous. And for another, he wasn't my type. I have always preferred black men. Yet, in those years, if I so much as breathed in the direction of any man, it was assumed I was seeing him. <laughs> Even back when I was in the blacks, folks, Seemed sure I was carrying on with Sidney Bernstein, one of the producers. Though the two of us were just friends. One night when he was walking me home, he said, Quote, You know, someone asked me whether we're having an affair. I screamed. Sidney was, was as old as Jesus then, <laughs> probably around 80. Quote, well, what did you say, Sidney? I asked him. I said, of course. Do you think I'm going to say no? I had cracked up. <laughs> a few years into my time with the Haber family, Bill took me to dinner. Carol thinks we're having an affair, he said bluntly. I laughed, not just because I was amused by such foolishness, but also because they both witnessed the steady parade of suitors arriving at their home to take me out during that era. That's not true, I said, smirking. He laughed and nodded, and she says her girlfriend heard the three of us were having a menage a trois. 
I put down my fork and stared at him. Oh, Bill, stop the nonsense. I finally said as we both burst into laughter. That summer, I mentioned this to Carol. She and Bill had a place in Paris, and every August, they'd invite me and a guest to join them there. Carol, I said as the two of us, we're preparing dinner one evening. I hear you've always thought Bill and I were having an affair. She glanced over at me. Yeah, she said. Carol, look at me, I told her. Why in God's name would I be living in your home with you? Bill and your children, and having an affair right under your nose? What is the matter with you, huh? She smiled and shrugged. What was I supposed to think, she said, chuckling. That's what everybody was saying all over town. Can you believe that people's minds work in the strangest ways? <laughs> Looking back on it, I still shake my head when I recall that Haber had the audacity to ever waltz me into his house without first asking Carol whether I could live with them. Guess who's coming for lunch and then staying for nearly a decade? Me. Around New York, everyone I knew had been talking constantly about how to carry on Dr. King's legacy, how to move his dream from rhetoric to reality, asking ourselves the question that hovers above our nation now. What will be our part in the revolution? We were always easing the ache caused by King's tragic loss, attempting to replace the emptiness and dream with a new sense of hope. Our leader had planned, had planted the seeds for change. We, those left holding his Grand vision were charged with ensuring its growth for future generations. Arthur Mitchell and I 
would talk on the phone for hours, trading ideas. Let's do this or that, we'd say. No, that won't work. Early one morning, a few weeks after we lost King, my phone rang. It was Arthur. I've decided what we should do, he said exactly. I rubbed my eyes and looked over at the clock. 3 a.m. I'm going to form my own dance company. He went on like it was noon. And I want you with me. The fervor in my friend's voice, the passion with which he spoke, dragged me from my bed. I washed my face, pulled on a trench over my pajamas, and took a cab over to his place a few streets away. On Arthur's living room floor, Amid papers and photographs he'd assembled while brainstorming, we sat talking about how we could move his vision forward. Wait a minute, he said after we'd been talking for an hour. We need one more person to be in on this. Who's that, I asked. His face brightened. Let's get Brock Peters, he said. Out the door we went over to Brock's place. A few streets away. Arthur pressed the buzzer, but nobody answered. We rang again. Finally, we heard Brock's sleepy voice over the intercom. Who is it? Who is it? He said. It's Arthur and Cicely, Arthur announced. What's the matter? Brock asked. I'm going to form my own dance company, Arthur explained, and I want you and Cicely to join me. Brock lumbered downstairs moments later. Once Arthur had persuaded him of the urgency of his idea, Brock threw on his coat and walked with us to Arthur's apartment. There with his eyes dancing, Arthur shared with us his vision. He dreamed of opening a classical ballet school, a place where black children, toes pointed, horizons expanded, could learn the rigors and discipline that had lifted him toward prominence. 
he wanted to pass on to them the same gifts, the same dedication and unassailable work ethic that had carried each of us to that moment. More than anything, he wanted to awaken in them a dream, strong and pulsating, of a world beyond their own. Though poverty and prejudice surrounded them, it need not define them. A few hours later, when the city stirred awake, the three of us were still talking, still huddled in that circle with our hearts wide open. That is how Dance Theater of Harlem began more than five decades ago in the wee hours with a trio of visionaries clustered together on a living room floor all those years earlier. When I'd first met Arthur, he'd assured me we'd one day work together. That morning, as the sun peeked up over the horizon, my friend's dream took both flight and root. Arthur, ever a doer, got right to work, clearing a path as Brock and I stood close, handing him his shovels. Dorothy Maynor, Maynor at Harlem School of the Arts near 141st Street and St. Nicholas Avenue had been asking Arthur to teach classes there and when he visited. He spotted potential in the school's bare-bones gym. He used his personal savings of $25,000 to remodel the space, installing a dance floor and ballet bars. More funding trickled in, along with mirrors at last. As the three of us lent our star power to luring in donors. Many of the potential investors we approached couldn't truly envision Arthur's dream for a first-class black dance center because in 1968 there was absolutely no precedent 
for such a notion in the elite and deeply prejudiced, prejudiced world of classical ballet. But if the three of us were involved, some came to believe, then the venture had to be sold. Then the venture had to be solid. Anything Arthur asked me to do, I did. I co-founded the first board of directors, solicited grants, worked with renowned dressmaker Zelda Wynn on costuming, taught a course about how to tell a story. Graceful, yet gripping, through dance, Lorenzo James, Arthur's longtime friend, was a critical part of our efforts. And though Arthur eventually brought in his Caucasian teacher, Karel Shook, a well-known ballet master, to partner with him in the venture, Shook is often miscredited with co-funded, co-founded, with having co-founded Arthur's Dance Company. Frankly, that's no surprise since the days when ancient Greeks stole advanced concepts of architecture, philosophy, and mathematics right out of the palms of Africans, whites have been taking credit for black successes, co-opting our ingenuity at every turn. But to be clear, on the morning when Arthur Brock and myself formed the blueprint for the school, Shook was not yet a thought, while he indeed contributed mightily later. It was Arthur Brooke and I who first lifted Dance Theater of Harlem off the ground and in between all the going and the doing and the launching. I served as Arthur's confidant and friend who during our nightly phone calls, lent an ear and moral support. Before long, Arthur had opened his doors to children from the Harlem neighborhood, charging them 50 cents a week 
for a place in history. At the outset, he had about 30 students. Arthur pushed every one of them to stand on their toes and reach past mediocrity toward a virtuosity the dance world has seldom witnessed. And in so doing, he defied the notions that black bodies were not made for classical ballet, that the lines of our figures weren't suited for arabesque and purettes during the summer of 1968. All of Harlem gathered, it seemed, to watch these gifted dancers arch their backs toward excellence. Harry Belafonte and Lena Horne were in attendance. So were Sidney, Asi, Ruby, Maya, and scores of other notable artists. With every leap in grand jeté, their exacting standards became a source of our shared pride. Dance Theater of Harlem quickly outgrew its original space, and by 1971, it had moved to its current quarters. A parking garage at 466 West 152nd Street. Arthur renovated the new space with a gift from Alva B. Gimble. When Lorenzo invited Alva to observe the dancers, by then classes were being conducted in the basement of Church of the Master in Harlem. Alva declared, These children should not be in a basement. They need a home of their own. On the spot, she wrote the dance company a check for $50,000. That same year, Arthur prepared his students to present three ballets at the Guggenheim. The mostly white audience applauded and was moved to tears. The group took its talents overseas soon after, performing in the Netherlands. Not only had Arthur 
chief ambassador for black classical dance, preserved Dr. King's dream and made it international. He done so in lockstep with the black arts movement. alongside poets and painters and singers and actors who protested not just with picket signs but through the mastery of their crafts. They believed as author and I did in the unique transformative power of the arts a well-told story in whichever artistic medium it is delivered can touch corners of the soul otherwise unreachable. Thank you for listening. Thank you.